What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the greatest podcast of all time, except for the Invicta cast. This is the Ionosphere, of course, your favorite show, the show which actually keeps you up at night when you wait for this show to be released. But of course, we have delivered for you once again. Today, I'm joined by four people, Gareth Daly, a nice young man called Ian, otherwise known as Ian, a more handsome James, and Benjamin here. Gareth, would you like to introduce yourself, sir? What's up, everybody? Uh, Garrett Daly. You may know me from my website, masterthyself.com, which is actually called MasterSelf. Uh, lots of cool stuff on there. Uh, yeah. But if you don't know me by now, what are you doing here? I know. It is a fantastic website, of course. And uh, Ian, how are you today, sir? Good, good. Uh, I'm Ian. I'm a historian, mythologist, and all-around learner. And a man who has a very illustrious mask collection. James, the other James, more handsome James. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, James. Uh, nice to see you again. Uh, yeah, I'm a, uh, I just got degrees in psychology and communications. I'm pretty active in the noosphere. I'm just here to see what's up. Oh. Very technical, but also very relaxed. I love it. And Benjamin, how are you, sir? Hello, everyone. I'm Benjamin. I'm just a guy shitposting his way to success. I just enjoy doing shit. Jesus, sweet Lord. So today, everybody, we're going to talk about a very timely topic and the APA released a study very, very recently, essentially saying that traditional masculinity is considered toxic. And the reason why this is so significant, because feminists and ra the radical feminist types will say have been saying this for a very, very long time, masculinity is toxic, but this has now made it more or less mainstream science and it made a massive, massive storm. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to immediately ask Garrett what he thinks about this article and perhaps if he wants to give any further information behind the article if I have not done a sufficient job at introducing it. Uh, yeah, so the premise, so far as I understand it, is that there, there is this concept known as traditional masculinity, which, was, in my opinion, was somewhat poorly defined and was a combination of a variety of things. That, that concept that they're using, traditional masculinity, is a negative force overall. So that uh, one of the things notably that that included was stoicism as a virtue. So uh, I guess that would be the first place we could jump off into this discussion. Um, the premise that stoicism, which uh, is in the term that they're using it, I think they're using it to refer to the practice of men not showing emotion. But traditionally, stoicism is a classical Greek philosophy that was made popular by people like Marcus Aurelius. Well, he was a Roman emperor. Was it? Maybe it was Roman then. Um, I'm pretty sure there was a there was an antecedent in in the Greeks. Seneca. Seneca. Seneca was another one. Um, they're they're the two most notable ones. I think there's one more, but I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, so I guess I'll define uh, Stoicism as a philosophy. Is essentially. Um, Stoicism is, is an interesting philosophy. Stoicism says, well, the world sucks, much like most uh, philosophies start with that premise, right? Life is hard. Uh, everyone dies. Things are going to be bad. And there's basically no hope that they're going to get better. And while I disagree with some of those premises, that's Stoicism doesn't give a shit. So Stoicism says, okay, well, you have to accept all of these things and bury, bear them with um with grace so you're going to deal with the uh vicissitudes of the world and not complain about it you're not going to show emotion you're not going to cry you're not going to uh, break down and if you ever read uh the only stoic stuff that i've read is uh marcus aurelius's meditations which i thought was a terribly boring book but it was his own personable uh, his own personal journal so that's to be implied. It wasn't written for an audience. Um, very, very good book. It's just very boring. His writing style is awful. Um, so basically that, that's the expression of it. Uh, Marcus Aurelius was a very, very good Roman emperor. Uh, his, his surname, Aurelius, is, uh, I believe, golden, essentially. Like, that's, that's what Aurelius means, because he was so good. And then his son sucked because he just, you know, stoic philosophy apparently doesn't raise critic kids. I don't know. So I think that's enough of an introduction to get us started on the idea that men shouldn't show emotions. I think that's one of the things that they raised an issue about. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, 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 sure. Um, they, they raised, okay, so at the beginning of this article, uh, I had massive contention with it because they, they paint it as like uh, men don't need to show emotion. It's like, or men need to show emotion. It's like, well, fair enough. But they also defined masculinity in a very strange way. I've got, got it written here. So first of all, they define masculinity as anti-femininity. Hmm. It's very, very strange. And, uh, and wanting to have achievement uh, not wanting to show any kind of weakness, adventure, risk, and violence, which is very, very strange. I don't know why you would associate masculinity with violence, with the exception of almost all violent crime being done by men, but that does not necessarily equate it, of course, with masculinity itself. So I think, I mean, it becomes abundantly clear if you actually read the article, which I highly encourage everybody to do. It's like a 30-page report, is, is to take a look and see the type of literature that they're citing. Because immediately you see all the standard, we'll say, SJW terms thrown around. They, they define privilege as white Christian male and middle slash upper class. So you immediately know what type of class of people they're going into. It's like, hmm, is, is, this, is this mainstream science that they're going on with, with the scientific method and things of that nature? Or are they coming at it with their own personal ideology, which has infected all the academic classes and I don't appreciate that one little bit. So to be honest, I could throw away the entire article straight away just on that, purely on the basis of you've defined masculinity wrong. Does anyone else think that masculinity, whether or not the definition of masculinity is correct? What do you think, Ian? Um, well, I read the article and it appears like there's always with these things that I'm unsure to the actual definitions of of what they're trying to talk about because you know when I was growing up and you know things that I learned and then I I have to relearn new terms as as they change over time and I feel like this confusion of terms is what's causing a lot of the problem because I read the 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 whole thing and it seems like some of the stuff that they are talking about is could be good but in the context of the whole, like, you can't, you know, men not showing emotions at all is bad. Um, I think that the, the premise of where they're coming from is they, they have this idealized version of what men should be. And it's not where it should be at currently. Um, and so this idealized version that they have in their head is, of course, what they're building off of. And that's where the problem gets created. Yes, it sounds, it sounds like you're, you're right there as far as I'm concerned. And of course, I am the, I am the center of all that is good and right in this world. Uh, more handsome, James, if you don't mind me calling you that. Of oh course. What, what, do you, what do you think on this topic? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, honestly, I didn't really, um, I'm not really feeling too much pushback from the definitions of masculinity that you just laid out. Um, you mentioned things like adventure and violence um and you took issue with violence i'm i'm not really gonna take issue with violence i think that is definitely a more male driven trait i think it's much more common it occurs more commonly in men um is but, it an inherent feature of men and masculinity or is it separate and just happens to well, no i mean actually that's what they're trying to to dish out here in this in this article they're saying they're actually saying that we can separate the violence from men and we can have positive masculinity. It's kind of like an alchemical um, process that they're trying to achieve here. And I, I take issue with that. I think, um, I think the, I think masculinity is something very complex and there's a lot of different factors involved. And I don't think that you can just jump in and tweak it and remove this aspect and leave this aspect without really taking in the broader picture. So that's, that's my initial thoughts on the subject. Mm. Uh, Benji boy, if, again, if you don't mind me calling you that, I'm trying to be very friendly today. Are, are you, you going to come in and, and slay James there? Um, no, I mean, I kind of agree a bit with James in this, because I mean, I do believe it's like, it's a bit of a cherry picking, the definition that they've been using for masculinity, because Obviously, I think there's good aspects in, in masculinity, good and bad aspects in masculinity and good and bad aspects in femininity. I don't know. That for me, it exists in its polarity, basically. And, um, okay, so if we get um, masculinity, and I don't know, there's 
there's um, traditionally associated positive things, as in, I don't know, risk-taking, endeavors, adventurous, um, I don't know, protective, um, looking out for other people, this kind of thing. But, I mean, it is true, though, that... Um, it is true, though, that all of the good comes, you know, it's a bit like a double-edged sword. All of the good comes with the bad kind of thing. There will be, you know, there is competition does breed, can lead to violence. Um, um, and I, I do believe, I don't know, well, violence, violence in, it, in, its, in its own sake, um, I think it's more quantifiable when it comes from men because I mean, we'll just punch each other out and a black eye is quantifiable. And I don't know, maybe if, when women are acting violent, maybe it's more like um, it's it's more like hidden, you know, it's like more verbal kind of thing. So it's psychological. So it's not as quantifiable kind of thing. And um, without going through that route, because maybe that will be like steering away. Um, in the end, I just like having having read the article and stuff. Like, as, as you say, most of the sources they're not really the kind of best sources, and um, it's just treating boys like defective girls, in my opinion. Mm, that's that's very interesting points, James. You looks you looks like you were itching to say something there. Yeah, I uh, I picked up on what Benjamin said about the risk taking, and that's I think one of the most important things that needs to be maintained in men because we have a natural uh, disposition to take risks. Um, I think risk taking is extremely important in societies. Um, things like entrepreneurship, starting businesses taking those gigantic risks to fill a hole in a market that you see. Um, <clears throat> that's why uh, uh, Taleb, Nicholas Taleb said that there should be an entrepreneur day as opposed to a labor day because there's so many sacrifices involved when those people that jump out into the open world and then they kind of fall flat on their face, but then some of them succeed and they, they thrive and they rise. And, people are better off for it. And so that's, that, I mean, that's an example of the, the positive masculinity that is, that is itself a fragile system. It's a complex system that needs to be maintained. And if we go in saying, okay, if you display any traces of violence, then you should be shut down. But we want, you know, risk-taking. I mean, how do you, how do you balance that? It's, uh, it, you know, it's the same it's the same neural undercurrents going on. There's testosterone involved in both of them. So, I mean, I, I just don't really see any, any sense in a lot of what's being said here. I, I just don't see how, how you can equate violence inherently in masculinity, but, 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 but. It's, like, it's almost like they've tried to win the game by automatically defining mas traditional masculinity as violent. And it's like, it's almost like they're trying to, to one up you and be like, look, this is what it is. It's like, who the hell says that's what it is? You know, it's like men, when they've naturally come up against each other, there will be some kind of threat of physical force. But how many men go about beating each other up? Like, like I was born in 1996. My parents in, in the 60s, you would consider that sort of traditional masculinity age. It's like, my father didn't go around beating people up. It's like, how many fathers did that? It's like, Benjamin, you look like you're ready to jump out of your seat, sir. Oh, no, no. So I'm sitting quite comfortably. Um, yeah, it's like going from what uh, Handsome James, I'm going to be using that from now on, I'm, uh, more Handsome James, is, um, is, I agree, is I agree with him a bit because um, there's, well, as, as I was saying before, there's good and bad from masculinity, good and bad from femininity. And it seems like um, there's a push to separate the both. I mean, I do agree, you know, like don't hit people in the middle of the street, you know. I mean, we can all, you know, try not to be violent, you know, we can all agree on that, you know, on social norms, on being, you know, respectable people, you know, kind of thing. But, I mean, with the whole, everybody, you know, like, everybody remembers, I don't know, all the, like how he was saying, all the entrepreneurs, you know, all the ones that makes it successful. Everybody remembers them and everybody wants to model that, but there's a lot of risk coming with it. There's a lot of um, hardships, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of blocks in the road kind of thing. So, uh, to separate one from the other, yeah, I do believe we can, you know, like in general, not only men, you know, men and women uh, as a society be less violent. You know, women are really capable of violence, too. You know, I mean, anybody who doesn't should go to a lawyer's office, you know, and just listen to the sob stories you hear or in a woman prison. You know, it, it, they are really capable of violence. I mean, maybe I shouldn't have said before that mass, I mean, I, or maybe it came out as violence being inherently masculine. I'm not saying I'm, I'm, I'm I don't that's not the message I want to give. It is true, though, that it's, 
um, violence in men is more outwards, out, more quantifiable. And I want to leave it at that before I think well, Garrett wants to talk. Now. Before, before Garrett uh, decides yeah. he's going to erupt into some masculine rage. Go for it, Garrett. So the, one of the things uh, that I've been trying to puzzle out for some time recently, I think there is fundamentally a violent component to the masculine. And it, it, I would argue that our culture seems to be moving in the direction of all violence is bad all the time, right? Now, uh, there's, I, I talk about this a bit more. Uh, there's a chat that I did with Stefan. Uh, but recently, there were some, um, some immigrant dudes that kidnapped these young uh, girls and sawed their heads off, right? And the argument that I presented as to, uh, and it, it was a pretty rough argument, but basically the premise was that uh, you, you can't say that all violence is bad because if these dudes, uh, imagine these girls are your daughters, right? Someone's sawing their heads off and you're, you're armed or you have the capacity to stop them. If your morality says that stopping, that stopping these dudes from sawing these girls' heads off is immoral, then your morality is shit and I don't care what it is, right? Like you have to have, um, the, I, as far as I see, the masculine has to be capable of violence, not to initiate force, but to defend the innocence of other people, right? So it, as, as I see it, the masculine is something like, uh, and I'm gonna outline this more in my series, The Burden of Existence, but part of the masculine burden is to accept the responsibility inherent in being the decider right so if somebody is threatening we can debate the ethics and the ethical implications of somebody uh initiating violence right but if it's happening you need to fucking decide you need to you need to accept that you're going to do something and kill that person before he kills your people right and that's i think there's um there's this serious cognitive dissonance that people have been lulled into over time because of the relative safety of the modern world that we think that the world isn't this dangerous place right and we think that if we all just pretend like it's this safe place I, I, sorry that sounds really condescending but it seems to be in some sense that if we just believe the world can be nice and peaceful that it'll turn out that way and it's we um, history shows us time and time again that that is not the case and our relative safety is not the norm. So I think we do have to accept that there is a fundamental violent component to the masculine and that isn't necessarily negative. Mm, very interesting. Benjamin, you may, you may speak, sir. Going from what Garrett said, it is true, you know, like um, you do need to be able to, to inf inflict violence just to keep, you know, everyone at, at bay kind of thing, you know, if, if we're all, you know, how there, I read, um, and uh, I read an idea that in the future war is going to be, it's going to be people shooting at each other again because if everybody's got nuclear bombs, nobody's going to launch them. If everybody's got the capacity of destroying the whole earth and everybody has the same force kind of thing, people stay at bay. Is the problem arises when there's, you know, when if you've got machine guns and the other one's still riding horses, well then you say, well, I see an opportunity. You know, you know, there's an arbitrage, so you go for it. But I mean. Um, backpedaling, you know, not going into war or anything like that. Um, I think it seems that the wars and masculinity really, like there, there, there is a need. They want, they want to separate the good from the bad in, in masculinity. And um, it seems like everybody should strive for the good, which I agree. But like I've been saying before, you know, it comes with the bad and stuff. So like everything that's seen as masculine, you know, like it becomes a patriarchy or whatever, you know, kind of thing becomes, um, uh, becomes the norm or becomes privilege because they've also mentioned privilege and stuff. It's like if life rewards the risk takers, like not all of them, but rewards, you know, the few that take risks, that's rewarded. The few that are disagreeable and can lose their job, well, they might get a promotion, they might not. It's, um, that few that they stand their ground and they say, look, I'm fighting for this and um, there will be sleepless nights and um, they'll, you know, the, I don't know, the hero's journey kind of thing. So, I mean, 
that will be rewarded. It doesn't reward everyone, but that will be rewarded. And these days, they want, well, I say they, I don't know who, you know, but I mean, it seems like um, what's wanted is everyone to achieve that, you know, achieve what's virtue of, of many positive things with no, with no work behind and um, eliminating all the bad, basically. And life just doesn't work that way. As my way of seeing it is like there's a war and there's, there's war and masculinity. Mm. Uh, you, you've sparked a rant that's about to come on, but I'll let more handsome James speak first. Thank you, more confident James. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I'm really interested in this idea of uh, of masculinity um, being aligned with with risk taking and the capacity for violence, as Garrett especially was hitting on. So, like one thing you can ask is you can you can make an argument from external situations that the capacity for violence is required. So, so Benjamin was saying everybody needs to have nukes so that nobody uses them. I mean, that's, that's one argument, but there's a completely di different direction that you could go. And I think James might be interested in this as well, because um, for example, from the Jungian standpoint, if you don't have, can you hear me still? You yeah, still yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. all right, cool. Um, uh, from the union standpoint, if you don't have the capacity for violence or if you're not developed sufficiently in that respect, then you're going to, you're going to internally degrade. You're going to, you're going to fall backwards into a kind of a bitterness and a resentment. Um, and Jungian terms, you might think about like the anima possession. Um, and basically like you, you, on the outward, on the appearance side, you're very soft you're very harmless and you know, therefore everyone should be harmless to you, right? That's the way that you're thinking. But on the inside, you're not handling your situations appropriately and you're causing, you're probably causing more damage in those kinds of subtle ways, those kinds of hidden ways. Like you're, you might backstab somebody or you might not support somebody in a way that you could have supported them. Um, and therefore, you know, there's consequences for, for that, for, for that kind of thing. So that's the, that's the thing I want to bring up here is, is there a kind of violence here that the APA isn't taking into account, like a, a more feminine kind of violence that ought to be responded to and ought to be recognized. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, can we think about masculine capacity for violence as being a counter to that? Mm. That's, that's so you're saying passive aggression. I yeah, clear, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. No, that's, that's very interesting. I, actually, a really, really good point. Um, something I'd really like to bring up is this idea of sexual selection and something which people who like to attack masculinity, attack masculinity, don't really like to take very seriously. Because it's like, say that their definition of masculinity is correct. You know, it's like, who, who decided that that was the main masculine norm? Is it innate to all men? Was it decided by the media? Was it decided by the elites? Who's responsible for this? And it would be women who are responsible for this because women sleep with men of a certain behavior type and that's propagated down into the, into the, the next generations. Like men learn from male role models. Like 99% of the influence which men will receive on the the, how their masculinity is informed and shaped is from male role models. So, so the, the whole idea here is Women are the ones who decided to do this. Women are the ones who slept with these particular men. So what do you think is going to happen if you go about changing the definition of masculinity? It's like if, if, if all men suddenly changed away from traditionally attractive masculine traits, then what's going to happen? If, what, if, what if a man is capable of doing damage but restricts himself? So in other words, a father, a good father, essentially the tender, aggressive man. What's going to happen? Like, are women going to continue to sleep with these men? Are they going to magically change their preferences? Or, or is the argument, of course, that women only like these men because this is just the way men are. And so they have to pick out these, these certain groups of people. It's like, I, I don't appreciate that very much at all because it, it's, it's an assault on the very essence of what masculinity is. I think every young man outside of a small population of individuals who, who suffer from some kind of, I'll say condition, I suppose, either, either it's, it's an intersex thing, some kind of psychological thing. So it doesn't fit the masculine norm. They all look up to strong masculine men as role models. Yeah, and it's not violent men, like men who are capable of violence, sure, 
But there's also wisdom that informs that. Maybe it's a metaphysic or just society or whatever that informs that. It's like a, like a strong, confident man with a set of values and he's driven more or less. And you naturally respect that. And I see all this stuff as an attack on that, an attack on, on what young men find inspirational, an attack on what women find attractive. And it's a way to try and change the definition of the words to try and win some kind of weird political battle. But I am. I will let you speak now, sir. Uh, yeah, I was actually going to go on something that more handsome James said uh, in that it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. And so I think it's it's going on to this thing of while in schools we train the mind of everyone, we don't necessarily train the martial aspect of that, uh, which I think is interesting in like martial arts and other uh, like combat fighting, which is the honor aspect of fighting with one another and how that creates a, uh, like a discipline that you can build your life around that also you use your mental models as well as your physical models to create a, a better whole. Mm. Very, very interesting, sir. Benjamin, you look, you look, you look ruffled. Yes, yeah, for some reason. Yeah, little caveat. I, for some reason, I, I hear you all in like robot voices, so I don't know how to make well, It's that. funny because you, you sound like a robot to me, but only you. Yeah, something yeah. has changed your audio, it seems. Yeah, it's probably mine then. The APA are coming for you, sir. You've said horrible things. Oh, did did okay, your headphones wait, unplug, or did, you, did your computer switch to... Uh... No, so I've, I've tried unplugging them, but I'm not sure. Hmm. Okay, so, well... While anyway, yeah, you continue, continue and I'll try issues to. that you currently have. I will, I will throw this over to more handsome James. All right. So yeah, so what basically what Ian said, or Ian said, excuse me, um, has got me thinking about the fact that, um, yeah, exactly what he said, we don't really have any, any kind of violence um, in our childhood. We don't really have leaders or male, male role models who have that not i don't even want to use the word violence but it's a kind of um it's a kind of action aggression maybe em embodied action that's that's very um it takes the first steps it's not passive so aggression kind of yeah um but there there can also be a wisdom with it again so we don't have that kind of mentorship and role modeling in our childhood and we also don't have very many opportunities for even just physically embodied activity. So what Ian said, when we go to school, we're getting our minds trained, but there's a disembodiment that takes place because we're getting further and further away from real world settings that evolutionarily speaking, we're equipped to handle. Um, and then we're, you know, we're thrown into a, a, a world of always thinking about math, you know, two plus two, or we're thinking about literature or whatever it is. And there's a lot of good that comes from that. But also, I think we also need to balance it. What's up, Q? Surprise. Yo. Welcome. So, yeah, we also need to balance it with an actual physical embodied presence that can tap into some of the deeper inclinations and motivations of the the male spirit mm. i guess i would say mm. I, I, want, I want to um uh, i want, want to briefly change slightly onto emotional side of stuff because because we've, we've talked about sort of the more the more violent the, the conquering spirit of the masculine but what about what about the emotional side because generally it's like we need to Men need to cry more. They need to show their feelings more. They need to go and show weakness more, show vulnerability more. Now, we are a group of men here, and I, maybe I'm going to show myself up, but perhaps not. I'm wondering if, if anyone else feels the same as me, where I actually find it very difficult to cry, and that's not because society has told me to. It's like I, I, I sincerely find it incredibly difficult to go and cry over a problem. I'd much rather solve it. And perhaps that's innate to the masculine, or perhaps I've been brainwashed. What do you think, Garrett? Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I think that's the function of biology. That's uh, testosterone. It inhibits uh, the tear production. Possibly, possibly, possibly. What are you saying, Garrett? Um, Q, there is a hand raise function. If you look in the participants tab, um, 
going forward so that James can, you know, decide who gets to talk. Basically, like you're giving away the show secrets. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's just running so smoothly. Uh, so the, this, I mean, this ties back into the stoicism thing that I was talking about earlier. Basically, uh, the, the way that I see it is, as, let's imagine you have a hundred people in a room and suddenly that room catches on fire, right? Um, we can talk about emotional, you know, openness and being uh, open with our feelings and talking about stuff. As soon as that room's on fire, somebody needs to not be emotional and fucking take charge, right? And this is, I think, this ties back into what I was saying about the relative security that we experience is that the, the fact that we're not facing these kind of disasters or dangers or violent acts that were so typical of human life up until the last century, and even I would say the second half of the last century, right? Um, we have this detachment from the way the world really works. And there's, there's two ways we could go with that. One, maybe we have finally solved those kinds of problems and the lingering violence in the world is something that isn't going to last. Or the thing that I think is more likely is that this is a, this is a phase and we're going to find out very soon that that is a problem right that we're gonna uh we're gonna have issues relating to the fact that we were not anticipating the world to become violent so the i think fundamentally what it comes down to is that we can talk about this relative security that we have which is a fluke but when shit actually hits the fan when you know we we're still going to look to men to be calm and unemotional in times of crisis so that's my thought is that it's it's a desperate need to have that calm you know yes. we need to have somebody that's going to be calm yes yes I, I i had a friend once i know anecdotal evidence doesn't count and we're a very we're a very uh, empirically driven group but uh, I, I had a friend once who he had a girlfriend and they were very, very attracted to each other and it was wonderful. And then he developed some kind of anxiety, not like clinical anxiety, but he suddenly started sharing his feelings all the time. We'll, we'll say he got very, very, very touchy feely. He would cry all the time. And then very, very soon after he developed these traits, the girl came up to him and was like, the spark's just not there anymore. It's like, who can blame her? As far as I'm concerned, it's, it's like, maybe, maybe because I'm, I'm a biologist. In fact, no, I'm not even going to apologize for that. It's like men and women are inherently different. And it's like, even if it's society programming to some degree men to be stoic and unemotional, what makes you think that's not virtuous? And what they say in this paper as well is like any kind of pain or emotional suffering is automatically a, a, like a vice. It's not a good thing. It's like, what the hell makes you think that? Is, is it, what, what the hell makes you think that some kind of, of pain is not only good for everyone else, but also good for the development of an individual? And in this case, if you're around women, because we are biological creatures, maybe showing your emotion all the time and crying over literal and metaphorical spilled milk is not exactly a fantastic idea. James Connors, the other James. And I'd hear yeah. yeah, so uh, I, I mean, I, I'm not in, intrinsically opposed to the idea of, uh, of men showing more emotion or crying. I think it's an empirical question whether that's the thing that actually serves the most emotional catharsis for a man and, or, or, you know, even just once a week crying once a week, will that, will that help a man, you know? Um, and so basically what I'm saying is that it should be at least partially left up to the men to decide how they emotionally purify themselves and so I, what I was getting from what you're saying, James, is that you find a kind of emotional cleansing by responding to problems and taking charge and addressing those problems head on. I think that's very likely that a lot of men do kind of purify themselves in that way. And again, it gets back to what I was saying that um, the people who are in, incapable of doing this will uh, enter a kind of a passive aggressive resentment. Um, at least that's a possibility. So, so again, it comes down to what men have to say, what men have to feel, and what actually uh, cleanses their, you know, their emotions and, and puts them in a good direction. 
And so what I think the APA has done is they've really violated male phenomenology and they've, they've inserted their own preconceptions. And um, I, I mean, just the, the pushback that you get from all over Twitter, all over Facebook, social media, I mean, doesn't that tell you anything at all? Are you going to say that all men are completely deluded about what, what's actually good for them? I mean, seriously, it's, it's insane. I, I yeah. There's also just a slight distinction as well here is that like there will be a gradient, obviously, in how emotional men can be just like everything it will form some kind of bell curve. Probably I probably more skewed towards more stoic. I would imagine. Um, but, but th there comes a serious problem there because it's like, why would you encourage men to be over emotional? Is that's almost what it sounds like. It's almost like that's the implication of this type of stuff. It's not, don't just cry. It's like be over emotional. It's generally what the type of stuff is. If it's what you're saying, that's fantastic. It's like emotionally purify yourself wherever you can. But it's like, that's not what's, it's like cry more, show feelings more. It's like, why can't they put it in your terms? Emotionally purify yourself whenever you can. And I've never met another man, by the way, for any uh, people listening to this, I've never met another man who laughed at another man for crying. But Mr. Mimetic Valley, I'm sure you have some wonderful things to say, sir. Yeah, um, I think we really need to look at the uh, endocrinology. And I, and I think testosterone definitely decreases your response to crying. Um, if you are familiar with any of the bodybuilders, if they're taking a stack that's not very aromatizing, which is to say it doesn't, the testosterone doesn't get processed into uh, estrogen, uh, especially if they're on something like, like high trimbolone, it's impossible for them to cry at all. But if they're on some compounds that, um, are aromatizing and they're not taking their um, anti-aromatase, they're going to cry. Mm. So that's why you see like a lot of people who do steroid cycles and they don't really know how to manage it. They have these like crazy mood swings. But if you're taking like a lot of the anti-estrogen, then you just like remain extremely stoic, almost like psychopathic killer like all the time. So that's evidence, I suppose, that it's at least partly rooted in biology, which is very, very interesting. Ian, you've remained too quiet. I have to force you to speak because uh, otherwise I will kick you out of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm just listening to all these, uh, this conversation. It's good. Uh, I am occasionally emotional. I am influenced, I think, by certain visual stimuli in that regard, but... I think it goes back to what I was talking about before that if you are just encouraged to be emotional, that's not very useful. Yeah. Uh, it has to be directed towards something or, you know, controlled in some way because an overly emotional person is someone generally most people don't want to be around because they can't control themselves in certain situations and it's like hanging out with a child. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's interesting because it's like implicit in what they're saying, isn't it? It's like be emotional. It's like why? But uh, but I guess it's like to lessen pain, but it's also nondescript. Garrett, my manly bearded friend, I imagine you have some things to say. So my thought, one of the uh, the concepts that I've been trying to develop uh, through the website, I talked about this a bit last night. Uh, my idea is that you have basically the the masculine mind and the feminine mind, which are respectively the order mind and the chaos mind, right? So the order mind is I'm in control of things. I am, uh, I'm processing the world. Like I understand the rules of how the world works. I see the relations between them. Right. Um, so being in like living in the order mind is, is knowing that you're in control of the situation. Jordan Peterson talks about this in the sense that he says like, Oh, if you tell a joke and nobody in the room laughs, you're suddenly somewhere else. So that's the chaos mind. The chaos mind, which is the more feminine mind is reactive. It's um, processing for threats. It's, it operates under the assumption that I might be missing something. I might not see what's going on. And it, it tends to relate uh, its observations to itself. So it's a social, uh, a social sort of identity as opposed to a logical sort of identity. So it seems to be the case that you have um, men acting as men are very much systems and, and rule oriented, right? And autism is the hyper expression of this, 
So you get uh, autism is the point uh, to where the mind becomes so hypermasculine that it actually stops understanding any other frame of reference other than the rules that's constructed for the world, right? The, the counter of that, the hyper-feminine mind is the schizophrenic mind, which is it has no frame of reference of another mind. So every piece of data has to be related to itself, right? So that's where you get the paranoia of, oh, everyone's thinking about me everyone's talking about me that that tv show has a hidden message that's about me because it only can relate itself to itself right so the my thought and it seems to be the case uh, and i don't know how how firmly i could state this but it seems to be the case that emotion is is a component of the chaos mind because emotions are like ways of us um getting information from an exchange without necessarily activating the logical system, right? Emotions have their purpose, where uh, if somebody makes you angry, right, then they've probably violated some kind of social rule and it saves you the time from having to go think about the entire exchange, break down every part of that, oh, was I wrong there? Was he wrong there? And anger short circuits that and says, oh, well, he, he's fucked up somehow, right? He's violated this thing. So it seems that emotions and the standard masculine process actually are separate. And so uh, I would argue that the stoicism that we see as a masculine value is actually the man should stay in the hyper-masculine state, or maybe not the hyper-masculine, because that's autistic, but in the masculine state to retain that freedom from the emotional circuits. Mm. Could be, could be. It's an interesting hypothesis. Uh, James, what do you have to say on this, sir? Yeah, I think Garrett has taken it in a, in a fairly radical direction here. Um, I, I think I agree with some of it, probably not all of it. Um, but one thing that caught my attention is um, how you described uh, autism as a kind of hyper-masculinity. Um, so what's really interesting, um, and this is, I guess this is going to be pretty controversial, too. Um, but uh, transgenderism has a large overlap with autism. And, um, and in fact, Q and I have talked um, at some length about how um, transgenderism and certain forms, certain expressions of male to female transgenderism are actually a kind of hyper masculinity. And um, um, as somebody who's, who has this dysphoria myself, I will attest to that personally. I'll say, yeah, I think this is a kind of hyper masculinity. Um, and I do think, um, uh, I, I usually, uh, and for example, in my podcast with James, I've used the word solipsism a lot to refer to this. Um, but I think autism has some connection there as well. Um, so like, uh, basically, um, a lot of these male to females, um, again, certain expressions of it, not all male to females, but a lot of them will have a very solipsistic way of engaging with the world. So they have, for example, their own aesthetic that's very, very striking, their own way of acting and engaging in the world um, and presenting, for example, their style of clothes, uh, their makeup, whatever, whatever they're presenting. Um, that's, again, it's Instead of looking outward into society and getting feedback from society, there's a kind of recursion where they look back to themselves and then they update their schematic based on their own self perception. And then they continue down that trajectory and they can go really, really far down that trajectory, which is why you have such extreme radical behaviors sometimes emerging from, for example, trans activists. Um, a better example, a more healthy example that I'll give you is um, ContraPoints. She has this solipsistic aesthetic presentation where in her videos, she has cultivated such an enormously impressionistic aesthetic so that when you look at it, it just, it's like a sensory overload of impression. And, and she uses this for her videos and she does some good things with it. I don't agree with all of her politics, but I think she does some good things with it. And it's much more healthy than some of the trans activism that, for example, says like, suck my female penis or something like that. I mean, that's, the, that's a very common expression on trans politics. 
I mean, yeah, so you see what I'm saying there? It's, it's very interesting to think about these things. And one thing the APA, for example, will never do is they'll never call this out. They'll never say that transgenderism could be a form of hypermasculinity. They'll never say that transgenderism could have male violence or male violent tendencies associated with it because they are political. And so they'll completely ignore this. Um, and even somebody like myself who has, you know, I've got one foot in both domains. I can tell you about this. I can tell you what it feels like. I don't, I don't really think I show up on their radar. I don't really think any of this shows up on their radar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which begs the question as to what their real motivation is, I do suppose. The metric value, sir, you look itching to speak. Um, yeah, so I want to say, uh, I guess, James and Garrett both brought up very good points. And yeah, actually, James's point is probably pretty controversial. And we don't know if it's, yeah, it's, it's an h- interesting hypothesis. And I kind of also want to relate it back to the endocrinology again. Um, so I don't quite remember all the, you know, the chemical details, but basically like what James said, I got that idea from reading this uh, Scott Alexander article uh, from a couple years back. It's about optical illusions. Um, it's on Slate Star Codex. Maybe we can link it eventually. But yeah, basically it's about how people process optical illusions. And, and what it says is like, um, I can't remember the exact details, but something about like transgenders don't see optical illusions. And then, and then like, and then like the next grade down is like autistic people. And then the next grade is like regular males. And then the next one is, uh, uh, females. So you see like, it, it's kind of like the next level of hypermasculinity. It's not, they're not between male and female. They're just like another form of male that's like extremely weird that we're not used to dealing with. Mm. And, uh, and that kind of ties back to what uh, uh, Garrett said, which is uh, like the dichotomy between the autistic and the schizophrenic. And, and that's, I guess he described it as a order and chaos using Jordan Peterson's term. But if you trace that back further, I would actually call that uh, the Apollonian versus the, uh, the Dionysian and Camille Paglia and uh, Spengler and Nietzsche, they all addressed this. So this was actually um, really elaborated on in uh, Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy, where he called Socrates the uh, Apollonian man. And so the Apollonian man is uh, almost too hyper-rational and they're kind of out of touch with their emotions. And what the tragic play is, is kind of like a balance between the Apollonian and the Dionysian. And so, so, so we're actually in a very interesting point in history where everything we do is becoming more and more Apollonian. And that's, that's basically Spangler's theory of, uh, from the decline of the West where a society starts out more Dionysian and religious and artistic and becomes more and more Apollonian. So it becomes more and more focused on science, engineering, um, economics. And it's basically a transformation from the qualitative to the quantitative. So everything nowadays is being quantized. We're not dealing as much with the qualitative aspects of reality. And so this is kind of like a shift from religion to science. Yeah, and uh, hold up. Let me tie this all back together somehow. So, so that's kind of like the chaos versus order type of thing. Because uh, So Peterson also brought up how the artist is the one who brings value back from chaos. is the chaos. And, but then... Once the artist gets something out of the chaos, you have the engineer to build something that's more orderly. And what's really interesting is uh, in the Scott Alexander article he wrote, um, there's some sort of like neurotransmitter, I think, that interacts with estrogen. 
in some interesting ways that allow that change perception of uh, the the uh, optical illusions. I think that can also kind of like shift your perceptions about certain aesthetics. Yeah, yeah so that's a lot. <laughs> mm, that is indeed a lot. Garrett, what do you have to say about all that? So that's that's really, really fascinating that you're saying. Uh, so this is uh, the way that I presented it is that um, autism and schizophrenia are both the, the masculine and feminine solipsisms, right? So it's funny that you say that because if you look at it that way, if autism is okay, I have my own set of rules and I can't understand anyone else's set of rules, right? If you go further than that, it's, it's like to the, if transgenderism is a further expression of that, it's not only can I not understand anyone else's set of rules, I can't conceptualize that a thing outside of my own perception exists. So the only way of reaching the feminine becomes through the masculine. Like I'm going to create myself as the feminine because I cannot access it in a way that it's external to me. So, yeah. fuck man, that's, yeah. that's serious shit. So that's, I mean, that's, that seems to be the fundamental problem of our, one of the fundamental problems of our time. One of them is the, the mind-body dichotomy, uh, right? And the other one seems to be this extreme solipsism. Because this is why people get triggered. Because, okay, I can only conceptualize my worldview. So if you say a word that has a meaning outside of my worldview, I can't comprehend that. So it must mean what I think it means, right? And this is the same on the left and the right. They're both doing this. You're getting like, fuck. Oh, this is, I have like five articles I need to write now about this. I need to explore the solipsism. But uh, yeah, so that's, it seems to be that, that is, how do we, how do we overcome the solipsism? Because the APA seems to be projecting, well, I have a concept of masculinity that I don't like. And I can't, co I can't comprehend the possibility that there's one outside of my perception. So it's bad, right? And that's what the guidelines seem to represent is their own solipsistic masculine that isn't really real, but they're not accessing the masculine through themselves because they're not. Obviously, they wouldn't complain about the masculine if they were exemplifying the masculine, right? And that's kind of like a Ivan's thread that he did, and I'm not going to necessarily support, <laughs> support the, the tactics there, but he does, he makes a point. And um, that's that there is... People that aren't, I would say these people should go like train in the gym, become hyper-masculine. And then from that standpoint, having seen both sides, then they could make a judgment because they've escaped their solipsism and embodied what they're trying to, trying to condemn without comprehending. This is getting very, very ionosphere-ish. It always goes deep, deep into psychology. As we're running up towards the end of the show, I'm going to say, because I am the eternal boss, the eternal king, is uh, we're going to go James, memetic value, memetic value, then Benjamin, and we shall close the show. So, James, over to you, sir. All right. Yeah, um, I agree with what you just said, James. This is getting really deep. It's really complex. I think it would require a whole lot of, of thought to kind of um, uh, to, to dish this out a little bit. Um, but I will say that what Garrett said about not being able to access the feminine through an external domain of some kind, um, and that being relevant for certain forms of male to female transgenderism, I will say that does resonate. It does seem like this is something that goes all the way plowing through the masculine and then wants to loop around and then access the feminine, specifically presenting the feminine. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, I'll say that resonates. Um, not maybe not everyone will agree with me, but it, it seems like it sticks out a little bit. Um, I, what what mimetic value was talking about earlier about some of these articles that he was discussing that have to do with, um, for example, the way autists perceive optical illusions. I believe mimetic value might have said that autists do not experience the illusion. They experience, uh, do, do you recall what this article said exactly? It was- um, <clears throat> um, I don't really remember exactly, so we have yes. to listen up. But basically it's like the transgenders are the furthest away from the females. And regular yes. female is much more similar to regular female. That's all I remember. 
So, so basically it's a, it's a mode of perception. What they were, what they were going into in that study was how you perceive the world. And then during that process of perception, you have your, your, uh, your abstract model of the world and it feeds back in a top down manner to re reorganize your perceptual inputs. And so this has to do with, um, this has to do at some level with the solipsism. So Garrett, we'll, we'll send you that article. Um, and then one more thing is that Hugh mentioned that there is a neurotransmitter involved in this. Um, and specifically that transmitter is uh, glutamate. And one thing that's worth thinking about, and again, this is, this is something I've been thinking about a lot because it, it resonates for me, but um, glutamate is, uh, is derived from glucose. And uh, glucose is, is uh, taken in in the form of carbohydrates, sugars. Um, and so one thing you can think about is, is it possible that our culture as a whole in the West is overdosing on glutamate right now? And is this mediating our perceptions? Is this mediating our degrees of solipsism? So that's if you want to go really deep into the, the neuropharmacology. Um, but yeah. So you're saying soy? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sorry. has the anti-soy diet. And then one last thing I'll add here, speaking about endocrinology and uh, pharmacology, is that there's a, there's a hormone that's um, mostly associated with feminine acts. That hormone is oxytocin. Uh, and basically, there is something known as mama bear syndrome that comes with this hormone. So, uh, so if you expose people to higher amounts of oxytocin, and then um, one thing they'll do is they'll be much more cuddly with the people that they love. They'll be more affectionate with the people that they love. If you take a father who spends a lot of time with his newborn child, his oxytocin levels will go up, all right? So that's part of it. But one, another part of it is that if you see somebody is not part of your tribe, you will be much more violent against that person. So that's the mama bear syndrome. So that's, this gets back at what, what we were talking about earlier about possible forms of feminine violence that may be existing in the society that aren't receiving the same kind of attention as male violence. So yeah, that's all I've got to say. Mm, very, very interesting stuff. Uh, Mimetic Valley, the last word from you on this show, then we'll go to uh, Benjamin and Garrett. Yeah, so, so I guess I just want to put this idea out there. Really, really, it's what we've been discussing for the past couple minutes. It's that I, I think the, uh, most of the people who are against the left, they're wrong about how they conceptualize the problem. They think the world is getting too feminized, and I think it's the opposite. The world is getting too masculinized, but in a way that's intellectual and detached from your physical being. So, so now you have all these people try to act like internet tough guys, but they're not lifting. They're like scrawny and weak. So they have this like very uh, deformed conceptualization of masculinity. And that's what people pass off as femininity because that's also, that's kind of like how the soy boys and the feminists think it's a form of detached masculinity that's not grounded in the physical and and then regarding that issue of uh we can actually tie in mimetic desire so mimetic desire ultimately happens because people want some sort of ontological metamorphoses so that's why as a man you you're attracted to a woman you you want to kind of like experience a metaphysical transformation when you're with her but when you're solopticistic you're just kind of like stuck in your own head and the only way you can kind of like get that transformation is kind of like simulating that through yourself mm. that's, a, that's a very good almost like logos idea being too masculinized in that particular fashion in thought but so they, they they define masculinity quite different to you but i i actually prefer your definition believe it or not even though i disagree with some of it i prefer yeah your so definitely read read spangler in palia and this stuff will make more sense mm. oh yeah yeah uh, 
is it Paglia or Paglia, whatever it is? Yeah, she talked about the um, the. He's brilliant. She talked about the Apollonian, the Dionysian as well. Very interesting stuff. Uh, Benjamin, sir, you have you have returned? Got any thoughts? Okay, um, sorry for before. I can't believe I missed half of the show. So that, <laughs> no one noticed. It's fine. It's fine. Roll with it. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I kind of agree with mimetic value here. Like, um, there is like, there is like, if we see like a masculine, like and feminine kind of thing, there is like a, a bit of a of a movement towards the center where like women are trying to become like more, not like trying to become more men or more masculine, but like traits associated to masculinity. And uh, men have been, I don't know if the word, the correct term would be robbed a bit, but like, it's a bit like an, instead of being in the extremes kind of thing, it's a bit like more both going together kind of thing. And I don't really think that is good. And um, without being able to add on what mimetic value said while I was, while I was out and stuff, um, I did recall that you've been speaking, uh, like you guys have been talking about solipsism and stuff like that. And um, as we know, solipsism, well, You've probably defined it much better than I can, but it's like seeing things from my point of view and not being able to see from another world kind of point of view. And um, I prepared, I did my homework a bit and just to go back on the APA kind of thing is um, I actually saw an article on the demographics of the US psychology workforce and um, the mean age is, is reducing. So like now it's like younger people entering and um, Correct me, James, uh, James Connors, if this is right or not. I mean, this is from the actual website from the APA, but like 65% of psychologists in the US are women. So, I mean, it could, right. be that, could be because like two thirds are basically women. I mean, if we have a problem of solipsism, I mean, it could mean that if the majority can't, I'm not saying women are solipsistic or, the, or all the ones are there. Um, don't quote me on that. But I'm saying it's like, if we have two thirds representing one of the sexes, it might be, a, and the other sex dying off, because it also says that the age, the mean age of men is around 54, 55, while the mean age of the women is around uh, 40 something. I, I can't remember exactly, I didn't write that one down. So it could be that they are not trying to, they're not, they seem from their own point of view. And um, one last thing I wanted to add, and um, that's, that's all for me, is um, throughout history, adolescence hasn't really yet, never existed. You were child, man you know, like from boy to man, all in one go. And you had this kind of, um, you had this coming of age where like the village or the people uh, you lived, your clan, whatever, like they'd get the boys, like the older, the elders, the men, they'd get the boys, remove them away from the, from the women, from the upbringing of their mothers and stuff and turn them into men kind of thing. Obviously, I, I don't know if, I don't know the psychology. I don't know if that's the way to get back. I'm, I'm not advocating that. But it is, an, it is an interesting perspective to take in consideration, as in it gave them purpose. And I know, I know the conversation hasn't steered. I thought it could have steered a, like, um, like boys having purpose because they talk, it mentions boys a lot in Boys and Men, the article, so, or article or essay or like the paper kind of thing. So like maybe it could be good for another one. I'm not sure. But like um, we could talk about purpose, like men having purpose. Um, hold up. So I, I just wanted to quickly um, correct Benjamin on one thing. So it's not like there's not really any problems with too many women in psychology or whatever. Oh, I, no, I don't I'm not saying that relevant. What, what I'm really pointing at is there's this new form of intersexual competition among males. So you have like different factions of males and some of them are perceived as say like feminine, but they're not actually feminine. They're just like another diverse it's just like another diversification of the male form. So it's ultimately it's different tribes of males competing against each other. That's the issue at play. That really has nothing to do with like, I mean, maybe there is a little bit with like male competing with female. That's also, that, but that's a separate problem. The one that's not being presented at all by society, like nobody think about things this way is that there's, a lot of obscured male versus male competition where let's say the emotional males are trying to compete for power against the stoic males. Yeah, I agree with that. Mm, very, very interesting stuff. Garrett, you may have the final word and we shall close out this beautiful show. So one of the concepts that I've been dealing with um, that seems to be, this seems to be the expression of it, right? There is a myth that Jung is very close to largely responsible for pro making prominent 
there's the idea of the syzygy, right? The syzygy is the divine union of masculine and feminine. So Jung seems to have gotten, and I may, James may correct me on this, but uh, Jung, Jung seems to have put that on the pedestal as the, the pinnacle of what we should strive for. The problem, and this, and this is an internal process where you're making the masculine and the feminine equivalent, right? The thing that I see as the problem is that we have that as the central goal, whereas that's not the goal. The goal isn't to bring the masculine and the feminine together. It's that when you do that, something's produced. It's sexual union. That's what it's a metaphor for. And we internalize that as, oh, well, we have to become internally feminine and masculine. No, it's that you need to understand the both of them. They need to come together, but you need to produce something from that. And what, uh, what I see the issue is, is the focus on the union itself. The, and you could even argue that this is like the... Uh, fetidization of sexual intercourse in and of itself. Pornography could be a representation of that, that we've glorified the act and we've forgotten about what comes out of it. Paglia talks about this a lot because porn doesn't deal with children being produced. It's just, oh, sex, the end, right? So I would argue that all of this solipsism deals with the fact that instead of seeing the feminine as a literal external thing that needs to be met as a man. It's this internal concept that we're stuck in our heads about. It's, it becomes solipsistic. And we've gotten to this point where we, we think that, that masculinity and femininity are defined as these internal experiences. It's not. It's a fucking physical reality determined by, you know, the biological nature of sex itself. Like, you... I, it, your gender doesn't matter if it doesn't result in fucking reproduction. Like, that's the only reason it exists. And every other concept of this, everything else is just a fucking lie. Or it's irrelevant because, like, DNA only cares if it reproduces. If it doesn't lead to reproduction, you can do whatever the fuck you want. But you can't make rules for reproduction if you're not reproducing. You're irrelevant to the grand scheme of things. And that's a certain kind of freedom but that's the freedom that leads to death. And we can't put that uh, as the top of our value system in culture because we, we're seeing the results of that. We're seeing the results of, of uh, reproduction not being glorified. Because fundamentally, I mean, like, that's what the Christ child represents is the, the product of the divine union. It's, you know, it's the glorification of the child and the innocence uh, and the hope for the future that that represents. So we've gotten to this point where our myths don't, our myths don't align with that. Our myths are just about this, this immature masculine, this immature feminine, and you know, just Tinder chasing after sexual gratification with no larger context to it. So I see, I see all of this as representations of that phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a very good way to put it. Like, it's basically what I said earlier. It's the intellectualization of the masculine rather than the physical. Really, it's too much intellectualization on both sides and not enough physical experience. And, and what's physical is chemistry. That's why you got to take your anti-estrogen supplements. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> All right, I'm going to say like a final word and I'll close out the show. Basically a message to anyone who considers themselves to be a tra traditionally masculine man. I don't speak for the entire ionosphere here. I speak for myself. Let's say there's nothing wrong with you whatsoever. Your mothers know this. Your sisters know this. Your daughters know this. Your girlfriends, your, your, your wives, all these people know this. Continue being your toxically masculine selves. There's absolutely nothing wrong with you. Ignore these resentful idiots. Very. Nice. Right, people, thank you very much for tuning into today's episode of the Ionosphere. We all really appreciate you. That's Garrett, that's Iron, that's Mimetic Value, that's Benjamin, that's James Connors, and I am James Downing. All the relevant links will be in the description down below. I hope you check us all out, especially me. Thank you, everybody. See you next week. <laughs>